mindfulness mode. I want to train myself and I want to be with myself and I need to be with myself in moments that are not overly stimulated. Reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness right here in Mindfulness Mode with me, your host and Mindfulness Life Coach, Bruce Langford. Mindful Tribe, I'm here today with a man who loves life. He's got a great gusto. He absolutely loves poetry and the creative side of life. He's got, uh, well, he's got so many projects that he's done that help others love life as well. He's come out with a new book recently, which is a book about helping you to embrace romance. And it's an absolutely beautiful book. It's a a short love story, really, with illustrations, and it's called Dance of the Love Caterpillars. I think you'll enjoy that. He's also a a speaker, he's a life coach, a super connector, and, and this is what I love too. He makes living an art. So I'm so excited to be here today with David Charles Brower. David, are you in mindfulness mode today? I am, Bruce. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and I'm really happy to be here as well. So, so David, tell us what mindfulness means to you. Mm, such a great question. It's really about having an intimate connection with, with life uh, via your, yourself. And I would say it's the way that your senses actually are present to what you're experiencing in a way that allows you to uh, actually choose how you want to customize and experience the world. And by being so present, you allow yourself to actually enlarge in the capacity of yourself to experience even more and more of life uh, by being in a space that's really mindful as, a, as I see it. Well, David, I know you live in Paris, France, and I know that you believe romance is an integral part of your life. And of course, you found out it's an integral part of a lot of people's lives because you did an incredible video called Is Romance Essential in Your Life? And it includes 33 people responding in very surprising ways. I I just absolutely enjoyed watching this video and I enjoyed the seven-year-old boy and what he said about romance. Can you share a little bit about the experience of making this video and tell us about that seven-year-old boy? Yeah, you know, it's uh, it was the idea that I, I just felt during COVID and everything that we've kind of become a little bit grim and negative and dark and transactional and impatient and, you know, exhausted and like wanting variety and change. And so just kind of kind of like this. And I wanted to find a way to uh, give people an impression that they could actually change the glasses and the way that they actually see the world and maybe live a little bit more from a romantic perspective. And so I was hopeful that when I asked this question, if romance is essential in your life, that people would respond in a way that would go beyond the classical impression of what romance is, you know, flowers and chocolate, nice dinner together, this kind of thing, uh, man and woman, you know, something like this. And I was right because of the 33 people that responded. Most of them responded in ways about really their love of life, their passion for life. Uh, What is it that they love? The young boy Uh, It was kicking a soccer ball around was his way of being really romantic and really mindful, right? That's in that moment there, the love is happening between him, the ball running. 
Uh, and we even have a 70-year-old man who talks about a 40-year uh, relationship with his beloved and how it was really just about being in the everyday moments together and saying nice things to each other and caring for each other. And other people threw in other things that's related to self-love, others about caring for each other, people just the way that we are, the way of being in the world. And so I really wanted to get across uh, in these challenging times that we can really just put on a different kind of glasses and create more serendipity and fun and playfulness and compassion and kindness can come through also. And we can kind of be sort of a romantic, you know, uh, that goes beyond the traditional perception of that. And again, it's, for me, it comes back to this love of life, this desire to, to create pleasure, share pleasure uh, with others in a way that uh, really becomes, for me, purposeful. And that really comes across. It comes across in the video. It comes across in the book, your incredible love of life. And I love the subtitle of the book. Of course, the title is Dance of the Love Caterpillars. The subtitle is An Inspirational Romantic Tale of the Adventure of Loving and trusting life. And that's what we need to do to love and trust life. And we can do that through mindfulness. You've done it in a number of ways very successfully in your life. And I know that that you had a wonderful romantic relationship with your partner, Agnes, and it ended with her passing in June 2019. Tell us a little bit about the romance in your life that you enjoyed with that relationship. Mm, yeah. Well, it was a beautiful, a beautiful love relationship of 27 years, um, you know, where you like each other, you love each other, you're your best friends, uh, you're passionate about each other, you respect each other, uh, you have great communication. You know, it was a beautiful, really beautiful, uh, beautiful connection. And to have that um, taken away by illness is obviously in the first instance, feels like a tremendously unfair uh, thing to happen to you. And so going through that is, yeah, it's quite an ordeal. And I'm sure people listening to this, some people have experienced um, th similar things in one way or another. And, and you know, the gift in it all, and I'm always looking for the gift in, in things in life is, you know, just asking myself, what, a, what can I learn from this that can allow me to now come back to loving life again, trusting life again, uh, and savoring uh, life to the maximum. Because in the end, uh, at the end of the day, you know, who knows what tomorrow holds, really. True. Yeah, so true. Mm. Yeah. Well, you have done quite a few projects by the look of it. And you call yourself, and I, I think this is really, really incredible, that you call yourself the sensorial guy. And you talk about your work as a sensei. And, and tell us about this, this title and where you came up with this and how this fits for you. Yeah. Well, you know, France is a, a quite an Epicurean culinary place and there's lots of beauty here. It's a feminine energy country. And, uh, you know, the relationship between men and women is maybe a little more Latin style and... Uh, you know, I, I discovered in moving here when I did 30 years ago that there was a, a different way of experiencing life that could be almost more slanted towards 
uh, pleasure uh, than it is towards, you know, performance in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. um, not that there's not performance here, because there's a lot of it. Uh, but it was like, you know, finding a different kind of balance and particularly realizing, you know, things like, well, actually, food can be exquisitely delicious. And it can also be very healthy for you because it's extremely fresh and it's natural and it's artisanal and it's um, it's made with love and passion and the culinary arts and it's honored and revered and respected. And people literally spend hours around food here to share in a moment of pleasure and delight uh, that in the end is very purposeful for the life here. It gives value and meaning to lives here and it's the central point for connection and communication. And at the end of the day, for me, uh, uh, I learned a completely different way to live a very performant life that could have lots of holiday time, that could uh, involve, you know, deliciously wide array of culinary experiences and, you know, not to speak of wine uh, and other types of spirit experiences. And I just realized that there was a whole nother way of experience in the world. And it actually really comes through our senses. And while I, I believe, um, you know, a lot of people have blamed the senses for misleading us uh, in a sort of hedonic way uh, and or excessive way or addiction, and these are realities. Uh, at the same time, I, you know, wanted to find my version of equanimity, my version of mindfulness that would be applied to living in a way that you know, didn't mean that I was, and I have, everyone leads the life they want to live. I have no judgment on anyone. Uh, but like, you know, I, I, I want to live sort of an omnivore life and not a, you know, vegan or vegetarian. And I eat probably mostly vegetarian. I eat so much fresh vegetables. But I also want to eat oysters and seafood. And once every month, you know, a nice piece of red meat and you know, that's farm raised or whatever. So it's like, I want to have the full range of the human experience. And so I said to myself, how can I train my senses so that they can be even more sensitive and refined to giving me more pleasure uh, um, without having to uh, do something excessive, for, for example, or without having to, um, uh, you know, eat things that are not healthy for me. Um, and so it's kind of mixing, like we have a sense of something and then you bring in some intelligence to that, some wisdom. And when you overlap them, you find a really interesting sense for me, a sort of sense of equanimity, a space to play within that can allow me to live the fullest life that I feel is, uh, is pleasurable, enjoyable, but is also purposeful because I'm not killing myself. I'm not lost in some hedonic, obsessive addicted kind of mode. Um, and at the end of the day, for me, that's true life performance. I'm getting a really good mix of both, a really balanced mix, as I feel, makes uh, makes life not only worth living, but valuable, meaningful, and that I can share with others. And I can be abundant around that and feel a sense of uh, of joy. So for me, it really translated through the senses and also artistic expression. 
Right. Uh, you know, I love how you speak about food. You know, you make it <laughs> you you make it sound so romantic. Just the food <laughs> itself, and and just so delicious and 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 incredible. Now, do you cook? I want to know if you have that relationship with food as as a well, not a chef, but as a as a as a person who prepares food. Yeah, I cook masterfully. <laughs> I just had a feeling you probably did, and, and I, I think that your relationship with food sounds very romantic. Would you call it romantic? Oh yeah, no, it's absolutely romantic, but it's also you know, like I could talk cook for about cooking probably for about five hours about the value of cooking, which in a lot of cultures, in a lot of ways, has been given a bad name as something that's a task or a chore or boring or only for this kind of person or that kind of person. It's a waste of time, right. blah, blah, blah. And it's completely opposite for me. Uh, it's an unbelievable Right, and in North world. America, so many people suffer as a result of overeating and becoming obese or even, you know, slightly obese, and it becomes a real uh, negative experience, that, that dealing with food is a negative experience. Now, you're a very trim looking person, you don't seem to have that issue, or do you? Can you tell us about that, whether that's an issue uh, as far as gaining weight and remaining trim and, and that kind of thing? Uh, I've been very fortunate that I've never, I haven't really changed weight in most of my life, you know, barring a few kilos here or there, but it's never been an issue for me. But it's also a question of lifestyle. Part of it is about eating and training your system and learning how to eat food, but it's also about your emotional, um, your emotional uh, clarity mm -hmm. and your integrity with yourself and living a life you love and not living in incongruence with all these different things, you know, not working in a job you hate, mm -hmm. you know, not being in a relationship that is just toxic or sapping, you know, there's so many factors that I think that come in, Beyond just perhaps being fortunate enough to not having had some traumatic childhood experience or something that maybe right. has created something like this, right? But right. this said, it's really for me. It's it's about a love affair with uh, with you know pleasure through my senses related to food. I'm really an Epicurean. I may be a little bit hedonistic. I may be a little bit Dionysian on the edges. But sometimes I let myself go to this. I don't live in these extremes. I live really in the middle. Uh, and what I love to say, for example, is, you know, one of the the number one diets or top three diets in the U.S., like every year on U.S. News World Report, is what they call the Mediterranean diet. And the Mediterranean diet is not a diet, it's a lifestyle, mm. right? Yes. Uh, there are certain foods you're eating, et cetera, but it's, you're spending time preparing foods, you're eating fresh things, you're going to the market, you're getting strategic about that, you're getting creative about that, you're bringing love to that, you're bringing insane levels of um, mindfulness, <clears throat> endless moments of mindfulness. And frankly, I don't believe there's anything besides lovemaking and cooking that solicit all of your senses in a way that is a, you know, it's like the ultimate cocktail of mindfulness. Uh, you know, it's not just a thinking, breathing mechanism, it's smelling and tasting and sensing and looking and hearing the crackling and like there's all this stuff going on that's happening there. But we've delegated that so much, uh, you know, certainly in some cultures where it's even cheaper to eat out than it is to prepare your own food, which is horrifying, right? Yes. Uh, but the question is like, do you want to nourish yourself in a way that uh, feels good, but is also tasty and that you can share it and you can customize it? 
And for me, I mean, I've really used cooking as a way to, uh, to express my creativity, to um, transmit my love to others, uh, to find uh, how to make something stunning out of something, transform something uh, from something basic to something quite stunning. And cooking is an incredible metamorphosis metaphor for this. And again, like the presence you need to cook with a very sharp knife, <laughs> you know, and when something's, there's five different things heating and cooking and blah, 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 and you're multitasking like crazy, the, the presence that it takes to be in that space is really a sensorial one for me, you know, that is backed up and grounded in a mindfulness that brings you in the present moment. And so yeah. there's so much there around cooking. And when you learn to cook really well, you learn to eat better. And frankly, I don't follow chefs who are really heavy. I mean, like, why am I going to follow a chef that's really heavy? Right? How does that work, right? Don't right. do that, people. <laughs> you know? That's good advice. And I, I, I'm going to go back to two things that you said. Uh, one of the things, as, as you kind of touched on emotional eating, I know that that has been an issue with me in the past. And, and through mindfulness, I'm now much more aware of my emotions and aware if, you know, my emotions are trying to convince me to eat carbs just for the sake of the feeling that I'm going to get rather than enjoying the food for what it is. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that you talked about was how in some places in North America, it's cheaper to go out and buy food. And the sad thing is that we can... We can choose really healthy vegetables and fruits and ingredients and, and healthy oils and so on. But a lot of those same healthy ingredients are not used in the fast, quick food that is prepared. Those processed foods, they're not very good for us at all. And I try to avoid them completely, but in, in Paris, France, I think that people embrace the food just as you've been talking about and 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 I don't know how many fast food places you have there in Paris but um, people really enjoy the the fresh delicious food that you're describing isn't that true yeah I mean it's probably a little bit of a cliche but I, I think on the whole we could say that you know it's really fascinating do you know Michael Pollan no uh, oh you look like a Michael Pollan extraordinary he's a food writer okay. uh, who's written many books uh, like 65 Rules to Eating. Uh, uh, he wrote In Defense of Food. And there's a great PBS program about that. He lives in Berkeley. Okay. Uh, and, he, and he even does stuff around psychedelics now. You know, How to Change Your Mind, I think his latest book. Was a, he's absolutely phenomenal. I love him. And uh, at the end of In Defense of Food, it's quite fascinating because the PBS uh, show, and I guess the book also, like the last part of the PBS Five Minutes is, you know, he suddenly turns the camera away from the U.S. and he goes to France and he says, look at what they do in France, you know, and there's four people sitting around a table having a conversation. There's no phones, you know, they're eating, enjoying, savoring, exchanging. They're in this beautiful, emotional, relational, um, intimate, um, expressive moment of connection. Um, it's really a mindful moment, a collective mindful moment. And there's a beautiful word, which I use a lot, uh, called allegresse, uh, which uh, in English translates to shared joy. 
So, you know, there's joy that you can feel in yourself. But what I'm really about in a lifefulness and the things that I'm sharing is, yes, we must cultivate our own garden to be able to spread those flowers. But we must spread those flowers more with other people and bring more people into our circle and share the wealth, share the abundance, share the share the joy. And that's really what Allegress is about. And and as you sit together and you're very focused around a meal that someone has prepared with love and that they've really been mindful to and they've really applied mindfulness to, to cooking. Uh, and when you do that, you start to create moments that people want to be at your table because they know that there's so much love there and that, wow, this is amazing what you've created. And of course, you start to cook better. And as we start to eat better, we start to notice more because we're very present. We talk about what we're eating and experiencing through our senses. We share our opinions. Someone else thinks something different. And like the dynamic nature of life is, is happening in that, in that moment just around eating if we consciously choose to make it a moment of mindfulness that's you know collectively uh, shared and Sincerely, I believe that the better we do that, our palate starts to get more refined. And as our palate gets more refined, we get satiated more quickly by what we're eating because we're more present to it. And so we're getting more of the nutritiousness and nutrients and love and satisfaction out of it if we are more attentive to it. If we've delegated that so much and we're not present to what we're experiencing and eating, we're not getting all the value out of uh, the moment. You know, even me, I'm always trying to set a really beautiful table, even when I eat by myself. I'm honoring the moment of sitting and eating. I have a beautiful fabric napkin. I have gorgeous silverware. I never put any plastic container, any glass container with like, you know, mustard or something on the table. Really, as much as possible, and it's pretty much all the time, avoiding any of that. So my table is always a beautiful ceremonial moment. And then of course, I mean, I won't even go to how beautiful the food is that I eat. But so you see, I'm saying you like you're suddenly shift like the strategicness and really even about mindfulness. We bring that into a, a moment of, of eating either by ourselves and uh, with others. I mean, look what monks do. Uh, monks in monasteries and nuns. I mean, they eat in silence. And a lot of it is that they're using that moment as a mindfulness uh, moment. They're not, you know, necessarily looking at their phone and, you know, doing all different kinds of things that are distracting them. So if we're able even to start doing that a little bit and just start noticing more, observing more the food that we're even eating, I believe that we start to not want to eat things that are not good for us. I believe that we become present and suddenly say, I don't like this. Why am I eating this? You know, instead of being somewhere here, suddenly we're really present. It's like, I can't eat this. Why am I eating this? And we start to get agency over ourselves to make different choices, better choices. David, I think there's incredible wisdom in what you've just been saying. And I think that here in North America, I mean, anywhere in the world, it doesn't need to be North America, but I think that we really need to embrace what you're saying more and realize that yes we can be satiated with the food we're enjoying and truly enjoying we can be satiated much more quickly 
if we're truly taking the time to enjoy it. So I, I love that. I want to talk about your TEDx. It's called The Power of a Real Human Connection, and I totally enjoyed it. Tell us when you did that and how that opportunity came up for you to do that and the process of putting it all together. <laughs> Gosh, I don't remember when that was. Was it four years ago, five years ago, four years ago, maybe? Uh, my, uh, my magician speaker friend, Bootsy, had said that he'd been invited to speak at a TEDx in Paris. And mm -hmm. uh, he asked if I wanted to be pitched to these people to be one of the speakers. And so I graciously accepted that offer. And they, I met with them and they realized that I was a little bit of a out of the box kind of, kind of person and that I'm, I'm more interested in the connectiveness of a, uh, of a talk, the, you know, not just the speaker audience. I want to be speaker and then I want audience between them interacting mm -hmm. uh, is really, I think where the magic happens in an, in an audience. I mean, this is really, you know, we're no longer in this command and control kind of world. We're really in this communication and connection. And I wanted to embody that and create a moment with people to feel each other in a intimate way that uh, would allow them to get a, a better sense of kind of almost connecting with their soul for a moment and realizing also that we don't necessarily need to go to some exotic place like India or an ashram or wherever to be able to actually feel potentially what we're trying to connect with to uh, free ourselves to um, let go of something to heal something that it's right here around us. And if we choose different kinds of experiences right here, we can get quite valuable, um, you know, return on investment uh, in that kind of thing. So there's that. And I wanted to share a little bit about my mom's uh, passing and the experience that I had uh, with that, which was a lot about letting go of uh, letting go of her and, you know, um, allowing myself to feel the pain and the uncertainty. And it was such a such an emotional roller coaster and an intellectual roller coaster and spiritual and all these things to go through the three weeks of her passing from, you know, being there, being very much in my ego and disillusionment and blaming and why am I here? Why are you doing this to me? It was like all about me to the second week saying, there's something kind of going on here. Uh, I need to be more present. I need to let myself feel what I'm feeling and allow that and have the courage to, to not just go into thinking and to just escape and et cetera. And, you know, started to be closer to my mom in that second week. And in the third week, when she started to literally slip into a coma, um, I started to realize why I was there. And, you know, when I got there at first, I was like, I, I don't want to be there when she dies. I don't want to be there. And in the third week, I was telling her in her sleep, you know, I want to be here for your last breath. Don't leave without me. So every time I'd leave her, I'd be, don't leave without me. So I, I kind of went through a very kind of spiritual voyage during those three weeks to get to a place where I wanted to be there with this incredible last um, moment with her and realizing the preciousness of that and remember myself saying to her um really the last thing i said to her besides i love you is 
you know, I'll, I will never feel sorry for myself. And I wanted well, to just pass the message that, you know, we, we got to love life no matter what happens. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I love how you share that with people all around the world and in all the work that you do. I think that's just incredible. I always ask a question about bullying. Do you have a story about bullying where mindfulness would have made a difference, David? <laughs> well, I want to share something that I experienced uh, about two or two, well, probably three years ago. I went back to the, the town where I grew up uh, around Los Angeles, and mm -hmm. I met with a, um, a man who became a teacher at the school I went to when I was a little boy. So maybe, you know, uh, three, three to seven years old or something. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're looking through photo albums and things like this. And he has all these stories that I can't remember anything about. He remembers everyone's names. And he tells me at one point, he says, don't you remember? I'm going to make up the name because I still don't even remember. He's like, don't you remember John, the bully of the school? You and he were best friends. And I was like, okay. And I don't, I sincerely couldn't, I still can't really connect with that memory. All I remember is I was a very small kid mm -hmm. when I was younger. I mean, I was under five feet tall until I was like 18, okay? And consequently, you know, the only way I could protect myself was to befriend the biggest, strongest, you know, people in the school, mm -hmm. which sometimes maybe I guess were bullies. And in so doing, I was protected. Right. And I don't know if this is, you know, way more about this than I do. I don't know if this was sort of a classic approach to things, but I don't really have a souvenir, a memory of that being like a bad, uh, uh, a bad experience. Like I'd somehow, right. you know, this said, uh, you know, there were moments where bigger kids would, you know, prance and trample on me. Mm -hmm. uh, particularly because I was very athletic and very fast and they didn't like that. Okay. So. <laughs> but are you saying you don't remember this boy at all? I don't remember this boy at all. And even later I had other examples. It became kind of a theme, I must say, uh, in my life. I've thought actually a, a, quite a bit about this, Bruce, about like the attraction to people who are somehow more than me or bigger than me. Um, and in some ways, it's a beautiful thing because you stretch and grow when you are people that are more than you somehow. So let's say smarter, know something you don't, some life experience you don't, older. Uh, my wife was somewhat older than I was. And so I don't know there's something kind of about that seeking refuge or something clearly, some kind of safety I found in spite probably a certain level of brutalization or you know, something that probably was going on that I, I probably didn't um, didn't feel so troubled by, um, given that I was kind of under the wing, you know, mm -hmm. and I was I was still kind of kind of protected. Now, granted, I, I you know, I didn't grow up in a, a very troubled place. Uh, you know, it's not a lot of this, but but that's kind of the experience I had. And, and it literally, it's kind of a theme of my life, this sort of surrounding myself by people who will protect me which if it turns out they're kind of the bully, well, maybe that's okay. I don't know. You know, it's a, right. it's, it's a, I'm introspective about that. That's very interesting, David. Your website is alive 
alivefulness.com, alivefulness.com. What can we expect to see there when we go to your website? A lot of uh, a lot of feeling alive, that's for sure. <laughs> a lot of uh, superlative expression. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of positivism and uh, optimism on my on my website, and it's a lot of joy and jubilance. And I, you know, I hope sincerely that it's it's me, uh, it's who I am, uh, that I'm not uh, I'm not you know proposing or exemplifying or embodying something that I, that I'm not. Uh, that's really important to me. That integrity. Uh, uh, it doesn't mean that I'm always like that, uh, but on the other side, what I want to get across is, you know, I've I've been gifted in my life in so many ways, uh, just so blessed, and at the same time, uh, you know, I've I've tenaciously, relentlessly, tirelessly practiced, trained, um, sought to improve myself, sought to progress, sought to grow. Sought to be a better a man, a better husband, a better lover, uh, a better cook, uh, a better lover of life, a better mm. romantic. You know, uh, to uh, to be better in 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 conflicting conversations with people that hit all my triggers. And so, I'm most interested in everyday life that we use that as our playground and training ground to actually grow ourselves with a lot of mindfulness and self-awareness, absolutely. And to take that more back into the world, into the world, into the world, into the world. And so what I've been seeking is to help create opportunities through live events and coaching opportunities. Uh, and obviously I talk a lot about food and these types of things, but it's really to create opportunities where emotionally people can get an experience of stretching themselves in ways that hopefully are um, somewhat enticed by pleasure. Uh, it's more like a wanting and a yearning. Uh, it's more like a carrot in that sense than it is a, you know, uh, a slapping or overly intellectual or overly rational. Uh, I'm, I'm really seeking to bring in more of a, a pleasurable way of, of personal growth that allows yourself to develop the kinds of lifestyle habits and practices and um, uh, ways of living your life, uh, the decisions you make, the people in your life, the food you choose to eat, the types of ways you choose to spend your free time, uh, and how you actually honor the little moments in your life to uh, get as much pleasure out of them. Because that for me is purposeful. And that is what really makes uh, life performant. If we align something pleasurable and make it purposeful and vice versa, this leads to uh, a performant life as far as I experience and see it. And I want to spread that abundance with other people. And I want to, you know, support people to choose to live in a different way. Uh, and hopefully because they haven't found another way to get there through you know, just pounding at it and crushing it and, you know, like, no, what's the great expression? No pressure, no diamonds. Maybe, probably sometimes. But what about no pleasure, no diamonds? I mean, you know, mm -hmm. we are here mm -hmm. to achieve pleasure and the senses um, help us get there. If we allow ourselves to train our senses to be better with perceiving the world and we use our wisdom to determine and decide what it means and give meaning and perspective and value 
and priority with what we're experiencing. We're constantly training that every single day, just like we would in meditation or mindfulness or concentration and focus. Like it doesn't just happen in the one hour of meditation during the day that or 20 minutes or whatever it is that you're able necessarily to translate that into your everyday life. And so my quest is to bring more into everyday life, to use and leverage everyday life in a way that I call sensorial intelligence, to be able to expand our experience of this life emotionally, intellectually, uh, physically, and yeah, to be resilient with that. And so, you know, I just don't want to live a vanilla ice cream life and I want to cry and I also if I want to cry from laughter and allow myself to cry from sadness and and other things and have the full range of experience I don't want to I don't want to close off to that and I I feel that if people start to allow themselves to experience life more in this way we start to be more open-minded towards other people we start to accept diversity we start to allow ourselves to experience pleasure and like there's so many aspects of it that that lead to what I um, really feel and define as a as a meaningful uh, life, which is pleasurable, purposeful, and you know, very performant. I really appreciate the passion that you have for <laughs> what you believe in. I just appreciate it so much, and you articulate it so well. Oh, so thank, thank you. you for all of that. I want to move on and ask you five quick answer questions. And okay. so just 30 second <laughs> answers are perfect. The first one is this, who is one person who has been a powerful mindfulness influence in your life? Uh, I mean, you know, I don't know if you're talking about someone in my direct life or like a book I've read or something like this. Or... It could be either one yeah. of those things. Uh, yes. I really, I really appreciate Thich Nhat Yes. Um, and the reason why I believe I appreciate him so much is that he's he's not just a mindfulness person. He's a he's an artist and a poet. He writes a lot of poetry. He's written about food and eating in these beautiful little books. Uh, so for me, he's way beyond um, sort of a classical uh, sense of of mindfulness, meditation, and this uh, you know this visceral connection with with loving yourself, loving others and loving life in a in a healthy way. Yeah, he's he's definitely incredible. The work that he's put out is amazing. Uh, my second question is about emotions and you've talked about emotions already, but maybe you can sum it up. Tell us how well, maybe tell us how you uh, respond to your emotions differently as a result of mindfulness. It's that moment of pause that you give yourself uh, that frees you from an impulsive, obsessive, automated reaction to someone or something that has uh, triggered you and your response is coming from a place of potentially, uh, you know, kind of a hurt ego or uh, or something programmed from some other period of your life, potentially. And so being able to be free from that, uh, you know, is is the mindfulness piece for me. It's the relativizing. It's that moment of 
uh, of kind of equanimity. It's the, 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 the this too shall pass uh, moment of impermanence that you fold into that. And, you know, really the whole part about this, you know, over-attachment to desire and uh, over-pushing away of aversion of something. Um, if you're able to kind of take pause and allow yourself to bring a little bit of wisdom uh, and, and not such a, you know, instantaneous uh, judgment to what you're experiencing, sometimes what you are experiencing will either pass or you'll gain a, a, that just that extra bit of uh, information that you need for your emotional system to either have already moved on to something else. Uh, you know, so there's this fluid moment of dancing there where, you know, it's almost like the minute something hits you that you're not, you know, that makes you kind of freak out. It's almost like that one deep breath gives you that moment to almost kind of just dance with it and let go of the emotional response, let go of the knee-jerk um, way of uh, reacting. And, you know, for as we all know, this is an every-moment practice. Uh, we're constantly being bombarded. I mean, it doesn't matter if it's Tara Brock or Jack Cornfield or the Dalai Lama, maybe not the Dalai Lama, but who knows? You know, we're constantly being challenged and triggered. And so um, it doesn't really matter how much you do in some respects. And at the same time, if you do nothing to uh, train yourself to to give yourself that confidence that if you don't um, just fight immediately, if you don't flight immediately and you don't necessarily freeze but you allow yourself to float there for a moment and just kind of let it flow through you it's almost like I want to do this kind of movement right um, so much of life will just be like water on a on a duck's back for you and you'll be able to be in a position of choice and not obligation in how you respond in how in the way that you respond you know in the tone of your voice uh, and, you know, hopefully you can forgive very quickly also. And it just gives a sort of a freshness to every moment. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I'm constantly trying to integrate this and live this uh, more and, and more. And sometimes it happens with things that you're, you don't suspect or, you know, it happens a lot in human relationships. A lot of that right. is going on, right? And so... Yes, for sure. Um, yeah, it's... It's unbelievably valuable. Right. David, I want to ask you not about eating this time, because we've talked quite a bit about eating, but about breathing. Tell us how breathing is a part of your mindfulness practice. Mm. Yeah, I would probably say breathing is probably the area I feel like I have the most growth to come. And I want to I want to be uh, let's make some distinctions about what I'm expressing here. Uh, I've often felt in my life that my emotional reaction to things like we were just talking about can mm -hmm. be associated with how my breathing goes. Or if I'm going through a stressful moment, et cetera, I can get caught into a breathing where my, you know, it goes up into here and then my voice literally changes. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I'm, I can be a bit emotive. Uh, is that an English word? It's a French word. Um, you know, quite um, at times I can be uh, a bit emotional in uh, um, a reaction. 
Um, mm -hmm. It can be related to stress or being in some kind of scenario. And through learning to breathe better, uh, and I still have practice to do there, in learning to breathe better, first of all, I'm learning to be in a constant state of um, almost equanimity in terms of breathing. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not allowing myself to not be aware that my breathing is getting irregular. Or, so I'm more attentive to that, right? The sort of sensing of it, like checking in, checking in, checking in, and noticing when my voice is not where I feel it is. It's, I'm not feeling it's coming from here or my volume is not good or so being very observant and noticing and questioning. And so that practicing on meditating and uh, uh, I don't really do a meditation that's around breathing per se. I'm mm -hmm. sort of more practicing a Vipassana style sensory uh, sensations, which I think would be pretty <laughs> aligned with me, yes, you know, the yes. sensory kind of things with the sort of normal breathing, but already there, like just a normal breathing, the way it really should be, means that I'm letting it uh, uh, happen as it, it can be. So it's, it's really the attentiveness to when I'm not breathing so much. And, and frankly, you know, and I really, I have more work to do there. And I've, I've even looked at uh, some singing experiences and things which I've done a little bit of uh, to to get more there. It's it's like a really, a, how do you say, it's like a barometer for me. It's like a mm. compass. Like I can definitely know if my voice changes, I know that something's going on that I'm not good with. Right. And so in right. one way, it's a very healthy thing for me. In the other way, though, it's like I want to be one step before that. And the mindfulness is helping me to continue to be sure. in that place of not not having a sort of a, the knee jerk reaction. And this is why mindfulness and the breathing is, you know, life changing, obviously. Right, right. Your allegorical book, Dance of the Love Caterpillars is a beautiful book. It really is. Thank but you. is there any other book that you would recommend that is related to mindfulness? Uh, we were talking about Thich Nhat Hanh earlier. Uh, there's a book called The Miracle of Mindfulness. Mm -hmm. by Thich Nhat Hanh, which I don't think is necessarily a, a, a modern book, but it's about meditation and relaxation and concentration. Uh, and there's one other book that's coming to me. Uh, I, I'm not really sure it's a mindfulness book, but there's quite a bit about it, about the spiritual path. I just love this book and it's so funny. So that's also adds a sort of a sensorial nature for me. Yeah, uh, It's a Jack Kornfield uh -huh. uh, book. Uh, that's called uh, the is it the way of the heart or I think it's called I think it's called a path with a heart a path that, with a heart that yeah sounds a path with a heart right exquisite I love this book and it's a lot about this you know mindfulness um, and just sort of like how do you play with this so like we don't we take it so seriously this is also part of what you know I'm seeking to. If I know that I can kind of be playful with stuff, I mean, look at all the sort of the spiritual masters. I mean, at least the ones that I care about. I mean, they're like laughing it up. I mean, you know. Yes, yes, they I, are. I don't is, think we laugh enough. I don't think we laugh you know, enough. It's like, yeah. okay, let's get serious about mindfulness. And, you know, it's like, okay, yeah. but I don't know, like, like, let's feel alive, right? Let's like, we, like yeah. one doesn't exclude the other. Like, on the contrary, it's like the ultimate demonstration, the master class to, to use it and live it in real life. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, David, I agree completely. We we take life too seriously. A lot of times, a lot of us do, me included. I, I just don't think I laugh enough. So <laughs> I totally agree. My last question, my last 30-second question is this. Can, can you share an app of any kind that can help people be more mindful? Yeah, that's interesting because I'm not really an app person when it comes to mindfulness. And I'll, I'll kind of explain... Mm-hmm. why uh, uh, and I'm not saying it's not a good thing because obviously the fun, let's start with the end in mind the end in mind for me is that we want to be comfortable with ourselves in any situation of life wherever we find ourselves with whoever we find ourselves and in that moment the app is not there to help you have the life experience and so it's the transition from becoming a little bit too dependent on some sort of a vehicle to actually bringing that into real life that that I'm a little concerned about. And mm-hmm. so in as much as I, I love uh, uh, certain mindfulness, actually I can cite one, I guess, which is quite fascinating uh, uh, that I did. I think it's, um, uh, it's a walking meditation uh, by Dr. Joe Dispenza. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's got like this walking meditation, like an hour and a half, um, you know, incredible production values, uh, you know, it's music driven. It's like this and you're just like, you like go into a trance, right? Mm. So anyway, with that aside, I just feel that for us, and again, like, let's use what we want to. Let's be like Bruce Lee in a lot of ways. If this works for you one day or if this, you know, let's kind of pick and choose for you, you know, the audience and every one of us, what works best for you. And I've just felt that my ultimate goal is I want to be able to sit with myself in silence, in intimacy, with no other distraction but my own mind, thinking, spirit, energy, etc. Maybe there's birds that are chirping in nature, maybe the waves are breaking, maybe there's traffic outside. But I want to feel that I have the agency um, to be able to be with myself Uh, without having to be wearing headsets, without having to have somebody telling me um, or some music accompanying me. I want all of that to be coming from inside out. I don't want that to be coming from outside in. And it's a process and a dance and, you know, these types of things. But uh, I just, I feel for us as we develop along, I almost feel it's better to sit for one or two minutes yourself. You're just starting one or two minutes a day. And the main thing is show up every single day, same time, blah, 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 you know, to be with yourself without anything versus sitting 10 minutes with an app. Uh, But, you know, sometimes forgetting sometimes. So I I just for me, it doesn't feel um, as effective when you're not really um, starting to build little by little towards your own end, end game. And Interestingly, you know, as you now know me a little bit more, Bruce, you'd think, well, oh, my God, the, the sensorial guy loves art and like, well, but <laughs> I, I want to train myself and I want to be with myself and I need to be with myself in moments that are not overly stimulated, where I'm like, everything is coming at me and into me. I need to be in a space where I'm receiving, um, where I'm listening, where I'm allowing, where I'm letting the serendipity of What's going to happen, happen. I don't want to be guided by something um, and especially repeated endlessly, you know, 
I, I think you start to fall into a bit of a kind of a like guided kind of way of experiencing yourself. And I don't want to be behind or involved in that kind of a, a way of experiencing myself. Well, I just love how you help others on this planet connect to people and connect to the joy that is really there in everyday life. We just need to learn to see it and to experience the pleasure and the small details and the nuances, as you say. These are your words. And I, I can't wait to listen to this interview again, David, and just really drink up all the wisdom that you've shared because there's so much mm -hmm. of it. And I, I just want to thank you again for being on the show. Alivefulness.com is your website. So Mindful Tribe, check it out. Check out the book, Dance of the Love Caterpillars. And there's so much more that, that David has put out there as well for you to, to experience. So thanks again, David, for being on Mindfulness Mode today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Bruce. Really appreciate You're it. You're welcome. All the best. Bye now. Bye. Hey, Mindful Tribe. I hope you enjoyed this episode with David Brower. Didn't you enjoy some of his stories? Like, wow, that story about when he was in, in school and he was the littlest kid and and he he had to really strategize to prevent being bullied. And uh, well, you know what he did. I found that quite fascinating. And, and yet he didn't even remember the student. Well, he got through it and you're getting through things as well. But do you believe your life could be better? Do you believe that somehow you could make things happen in a more effective way? Somehow you could, you could just make some changes so that you didn't feel so, so well, locked, locked down. Maybe you're feeling stuck. Are you feeling as though, you know, you could have a greater sense of contentment in your life and you could be moving forward and, and feeling good about life every day, you know, rather than this feeling of struggle over and over again. Do you have a feeling in your, in your gut of, of fear or a feeling of hate or a feeling of, of anger? Is that anger eating away at you? Because that's the case with a lot of people. And through mindfulness, you can you can work and, and get to the point where you feel more of a sense of contentment. But if you want to speed up that process, if you want to make that happen faster, then consider hypnosis. And self-hypnosis is something that I've been doing for, well, it must be three years now. And self-hypnosis is what was responsible for me losing weight, and it's been responsible for me just moving forward and achieving things and you know I mean with this podcast it's almost six years and I have not missed an episode two episodes a week for six years and it's because of you know being able to have that focus and uh, certainly there are a lot of things that I struggle with in my life I'm not trying to pretend that my life is some kind of amazing perfect life but I do have a level of contentment and I do have a level of joy that mindfulness has brought me and if you want to fast track so that you can get to this point quicker then you know what works 
well, at least my experience and my experience with my clients, is hypnosis. And I am absolutely amazed at how much quicker you can move forward with the help of hypnosis. So if you'd like to talk about that, if you'd like to just just check that out to discuss how that can possibly work for you, I'd love to talk to you. So send me an email. Send me an email at bruce at mindfulnessmode.com and in the subject line, put David Brower and then I'll know that uh, you heard me on this episode. So I look forward to hearing from you and I, I hope that you do take action and reach out if you feel that this could be right for you because you know what so many of us do? We, we, we have thoughts, we think, hey, maybe I'll do this, maybe I'll do that. And a lot of times we don't take action. But it's when we do take action that positive things generally happen. So, you know, do consider sending that email so we can get on a call and we can make things happen. So Mindful Tribe, so great to have you with us today. Take what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.